His way is perfect. In God's providence, there was a change in the music schedule that moved them from this afternoon to this morning. And it fits beautifully in with the passage we are going to deal with today. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. There are different trials, different struggles that we face for different reasons. The Apostle Peter is writing this letter to the saints who are scattered, to the saints who are strangers and pilgrims, to the saints dearly beloved. And many of them are slaves. The ancient Roman custom of slavery is unknown in our modern era. But imagine you are a slave, and you receive this letter from Peter. It's being passed through the churches. And you hear all about liberty. I mean, if we were to take into the full context of these churches in Asia Minor, they've received many of Paul's letters talking about liberty that they have in Christ. But yet you are still a slave. How might you respond when, as this letter is being read, you hear this? Servants! Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning thankful for your word, thankful for you and your Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle Peter to pen these words that you have preserved to our day today. Lord, we cannot identify with the experience of the servant slaves of the first century in the Roman Empire. But may we consider their state and then look at this passage and help us, Lord, to understand how we in our age can apply it. Teach us and help us to understand. And Lord Jesus, may we look to you as our example. We need your help. We need your guidance. And so guide us here, we pray, in your precious name. Amen. Look with me here at verse 18. He addresses the servants. And he says to these servants, be subject to your masters, with all fear. 
I said a moment ago that the slavery of the first century we can't identify with. I'd like to read to you just an excerpt from the greats, so to speak, of that era who described slavery. Here, the servant word serve, there's two different words used throughout the New Testament for a servant or a slave. One is doulos, which you hear often, and another one has to do with oiki, which is a a household servant. In fact, of the two, the household servant was in some regards the more menial of them. Um, Because in the Roman Empire, uh, they put slaves for everything. In fact, as you may know your history, the greatness of slavery in the empire was its downfall. Because those who were free occupied themselves in nothing more than leisure and laziness and wickedness. So we might envision or imagine that time and this aspect of the slaves being the ones who do all the hard work while, you know, the, the free are free. Well, no, in the Roman Empire, the slaves did everything, all the way from being your doctors and nurses down to being the ones who take out your chamber pot. That was the portable toilet in your bedroom. They, they did everything. They were your attorneys. They did everything. Every aspect of society was done by slaves. But the worst of it were those who were household slaves, the kind being addressed here by Peter in verse 18. Have you ever heard of Aristotle, the great philosopher? Well, after you hear his view of slavery, you may take away the word great from philosopher. In fact, I don't know that I would ever have personally classified him as great, but he is considered a great historical philosopher. He writes this, There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Let those words of this philosopher sink in. (laughs) Our modern mind shudders at those words, and it should. A slave is nothing but a tool. Nothing but a tool. That's Aristotle. Well, there were other philosophers not quite so greatly known. Varro. How many of you heard of Varro? Not so much. Well, he philosophized it in a different way, but still considering it all. He divided the instruments of agriculture into three classes. So he has three classes of the instruments of agriculture. Now, when we think of instruments of agriculture today, what do we think of? We think of tractors, columbines, planters. We think of the the big machines. Or we might think of a plow, right? The instruments of agriculture. Isaac sells them, right? The instruments of agriculture. Well, he divided them into three classes. This guy, back in Roman days as the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. 
you catch that? The articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. What did he mean by that? Well, the articulate comprising the slaves. The inarticulate comprising the cattle. And the mute comprising the vehicles. And now again, he's taking and classifying the slaves, the servants, as instruments of agriculture. And the only difference there is between the hoe and the wagon um, is that they're, they, they're mute. There's no difference. They, they are mute. But the only difference between those mute things, those things that can't speak, and the, the oxen that pull the cart is that they can, they can make noise. They're not mute, but yet they're inarticulate. That means that they cannot think and describe anything. But yet it's, they're still instruments of agriculture. And then he goes on to say that then there's another instrument of agriculture, which is a human being, a slave. And the only difference between him and the wagon is that he can talk and articulate things. This was the view of a slave. This was the prevailing view of these servants. Could you imagine? It summed up that whatever a master does to a slave undeservingly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, in judgment, justice, and law, it doesn't matter. The master's will has his own way. The slaves described in ancient Rome, these household servants. Now imagine you're one of them. Imagine you're one who is not free, but is the property, is the instrument of whoever. Now, we all know that one who is a wise steward of his instruments, whether, that's a, whether it's a tool or a vehicle, is going to take care of it. And you would hope and think that the same would be true with the people. But often the problem in the ancient Roman Empire is that it was kind of flipped. They would take better care of their tools and their animals than they would of their people. Now imagine you're one of those servants and you get this letter from Peter and he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Now you may look at that and you're like, I got the phobia part, right? I got the fear part. That's the Greek word phobia. I got the fear part. I mean, my master's cruel. He's mean. He's crooked. He's just nothing to be desired. And I'm supposed to submit to him? I get fearing him. Well, the word phobia here and throughout Scripture carried more than just the idea of being fear and dread. It carried this awe. Part of the reason why there was this, and especially with these slaves, is there was a recognition not only of being fearful, you, you, you would have fear for your master, but that fear would be a respect for him and an awe for him because he could on a whim just discard you like he would a worn-out 
shovel. And so, you would have fear for him. You would have respect for him. Now, it's fascinating to see how this comes in context. It comes immediately after dealing with submission to civil government. And it's followed by a really a, a, a reminder and a plea to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, the ultimate one who served, the ultimate one who in patience endured wrongdoing and suffered greatly. Let's go back and read the context here because there's some pieces to it that will help us. Remember here now, you're a slave. Look at verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation. Now that you understand a little bit more what a slave was, do you hear how significant that is? Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, unholy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Hear this description of them spiritually in relationship to their God. And then he transitions in verse 11 by addressing them. Dearly beloved, dearly beloved by God, you may be a household slave. You may be treated no better than a rake or a shovel, not even as nice as the cattle are treated, but you're dearly beloved by God. And so he pleads with them as though dearly beloved, again, as we talked about a few weeks ago, acknowledging as he beseeches them that they are strangers and that they are pilgrims, they're, they're not a part of this world in an eternal, big-picture sense, but yet they are. Imagine you had just been beaten by your master. You come to the ecclesia, the assembly of the brethren and in fellowship, and your back is still bleeding and aching. Imagine that your brother or sister is, is dressing your wounds as you're hearing this letter for the first time. Oh, dearly beloved. And then the plea, the beseeching, that we abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having our conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. May they be visited in the day of visitation, not with judgment, but with grace, because you've shown them the God who is a God of mercy. And with all this, he then deals with submission. Two realms. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. 
For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Here is referring to the more general term, the doulas slave, which could have been in positions of honor. You notice here, he's dealing with the free. He's dealing with their spiritual state, their spiritual position in Christ. They're free, but not all of them are free. Some of them are free, but not all of them are free. And he's warning them, don't even use your freedom that you have, your spiritual freedom. Don't use it as a cloak, a covering, a way of hiding wrongdoing, maliciousness. Don't, don't use it that way. But rather, use your freedom to be servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I think it's interesting that verse 17 falls here between, or transitions the two, from the submission to civil government to the submission to masters. Because there's some important keys here in all of this, and there's important checks and balances. Honor all men. Imagine if you were one who was there, who was a master. Honor all men. There's a check. There's a check on the common view of the slave. Ah, they're slaves. We're free. There was a check. Honor all men. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Ooh, imagine now you are in a church where there are masters and slaves. Masters have come to faith in Christ, and slaves have come, faith, come in faith to Christ. Now you're a part of one body where there is neither free nor bond. Now, that doesn't mean that sitting in the chairs, gathered in the assemblies, there were not free people and people bond people, slaves and masters. In fact, there were. In fact, if we go read the book of Philemon we find a relationship here between a master and a slave. And it's very interesting in light of Peter and the context that Onesimus had with Philemon. Here in this case now, whether you are master or you are slave, love the brotherhood. Now imagine how complicated that relationship would get. Think about it. How complicated that situation would get because now... You are brethren. You are equal. But yet you're not. Do you see the difference? And Peter is actually acknowledging it. There needs to be that love of the brotherhood that comes place here, regardless of whether or not you're the master or the slave. But yet he then continues on in telling the servants to be subject. Notice the next one. Fear God. There's a check for both the servant and the master. Just as it is a check regarding the citizen who is subject to the ordinances of man, there is a check, and that is fearing God and then honoring the king. So we have this kind of transition here in the midst of it because it also would have had the same context of the, there were government rulers who were also over people and yet we're one in the body of Christ, bond nor free. How is this going to work? It's part of the reason why Peter is writing 
this letter. And you might be one who says, oh, my master is like Philemon. Do you know Philemon? There's a letter written to Philemon. He was a master. And we get the impression that he was a reasonable man, for Paul appeals to his reasonableness. We get the impression that he was a gentle master, for Paul appeals to his gentleness. And so, for men like Onesimus, this may not have been so hard. For Onesimus to consider his master, Philemon, and to submit himself to his master. But what if my master wasn't like Philemon? What if my master is, as described here, forward? What then? Do I still have to submit to him? I mean, it was quite common for household slaves to murder their masters in their beds. It was quite common. Do I still have to submit to him? Well, that's what Peter's saying here. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. I believe that fear is not just in a respect for your master. I believe it's a respect for your master, knowing there is a fear, but also tied back to the fear of God. All fear. You're not going to do wrong if your master commands you to do wrong. But it's not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the forward. Where the forward, the crooked, the dishonest, the cruel, the inconsistent. It's even spelled out. Now, there is a check. If he's commanding one to do evil, that's checked. But, uh, oh, that's, that's hard to swallow. This letter of First Peter made its way to Ephesus. Been talking about Philemon, been talking about Onesimus. They got this letter. They got this letter. I wonder if they sat there side by side as brothers and understood this, understood the tension that was there. It's still true. It's a tension that's still true in relationships of masters and servants today. You say, we don't have masters and servants. Yeah, we do. They're called employers and employees. Now, again, it's not the same system as it was in Rome because employees better not be being treated as implements. But uh, there's still a relationship of a, of a master and of a servant. And when we look at that relationship, we need to heed what's being described here. Now, we have a little bit of a difference because if we have an unreasonable boss, for the most part, we can just go find another job, right? That wasn't the case for them. They couldn't just go find another job. Now, Paul, if we balance this, in other places did say that if you have the ability to be free, use it and be free, but then serve God. 
But so many couldn't use it to be free. They were trapped in this situation. It didn't matter who their masters were. They were slaves. Paul, Peter says, submit to them. And then he deals with it the same way he dealt with it with a civil government. You see, when he was dealing with civil government, both here and also over in chapter 4, um, in verse 15, 15 that deals with um, if you suffer for, as an evildoer, then you suffer as an evildoer. And he goes into this. For he says that when a servant submits, he says, for this is thankworthy. We're going to come back to that word thankworthy, but look how he goes on and makes this qualification. If a man for conscience toward God in your grief, suffering wrongfully, this is thankworthy. This is honorable. This is right. Not right in the sense that the master has the right to do it, but this is good in the sense that, you're, you're, it's, it's, it's that you're suffering for doing right versus what he now says, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. There's no glory in that. If you've done something wrong and you have been disciplined, you deserved it. There's no glory in it. Even if you take it patiently, which you still should take it patiently. But if when ye do well, and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. So servants submit, not just to the good and gentle, but also to the forward who are perverse, crooked, and corrupt. This is thankworthy. If you suffer for well-doing, look here, for conscience toward God, now, when we think of conscience, oftentimes we think of that little voice inside that says, you did wrong. Or we think of that little voice inside that says, don't do that, that's wrong. Now, there isn't a little voice inside, but God has given to us each a conscience. But did you know that our consciences can be seared as with an iron? Our consciences can cause us trouble which is why we have to and must be careful that our conscience is toward God, meaning that our conscience is reflecting what, and well, starting with who God is, acknowledging Him as God, as Lord, as my Creator, the one to whom I am ultimately accountable to, the one who not only has the power over the body but also over my soul, conscience toward Him but it's also conscience toward what he has said, commanded, and revealed. And when we consider him as a person and what he has revealed himself as and what he has commanded, it is toward that that our consciences need to be sensitive. There are occasions when an employer, or in this time, may ask of something that is not right to do, and you cannot do it, for your conscience toward God says no. This is a check. As much as it is to say that, oh, you know, um, I, 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 don't, I don't like my boss. He's been cruel to me. He's cheated me on my wages, so I'm going to prolong him. 
You know what that means? Over in Titus, it says not purloining. Don't steal. Don't invent and rationalize in your seared conscience this right to steal from your master or to do wrong. What Peter is saying here that if, if that is the case, there's no glory in that. That's not thankworthy. That's not acceptable to God. Have a conscience that is toward God to submit to the master and to do what's right. And there's a lot, actually, in the Scriptures, especially if we were to go back to the Old Testament in the Proverbs, which are practical truths for daily living, of how one works. Working's good. Especially we as people who are freemen. How we work, do we do it with all of our heart? Do we have a diligence? Do we have a faithfulness? Especially when we, do, we can so often go away from the one who is forward and find other employment. Imagine if you couldn't. That would be quite dreadful. But why, why, why would we ever suffer, suffer for doing wrong? That's Peter's point here in this. There's no glory in that. That is not thankworthy, and that is not acceptable to God. But if when ye do well, he says, ye suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. There are two words I'd like to now bring your attention to that we've kind of skipped over but yet referred to them. The word thankworthy and the word acceptable. For Peter has here declared that the servants who are in subjection and who even suffer for wrongdoing are thankworthy and acceptable to God. There's something here that when we go back to the Greek makes these two words incredibly fascinating. You may know the Greek word. In fact, I know most of you do because my sister is named after the Greek word. The Greek word is charis. You know the Greek word charis? It's the word frequently and most commonly translated in your New Testament as grace. So this righteous submission and even maybe suffering when it is for right and for what is for doing well he says that it is thankworthy and acceptable this is grace now why did the translators choose these words because they're a nuance of the word caris they're a nuance of the word grace. In fact, it's another secondarily common way of translating the word charis is to think, translate it as thanks or giving of thanks. When I was a little kid, we always would pray before our meals and we would talk and we would refer to it as giving thanks. But it was always ringed in my ear strange when someone would say before a meal, let us give grace. Who would like to say grace? And it always rung strange in my ear. Well, you know what they're literally saying when we understand grace in another nuance of its word, is that we have received favor, a gift, and so we return favor in thanks. Do you see it? 
We've received favor, a gift, and so we return favor in thanks. That's a nuance of the word. Here, think worthy. I have suffered, not for wrongdoing, but for doing well. By the way, in the midst of that, I receive grace from my God. And as I receive grace for that, so I return giving of thanks. You might say, hmm? It says, thank worthy? Um, I don't think I want to thank God for suffering. How many of you want to thank God for suffering? I don't think I want to thank God for suffering. But it says we do. It says that suffering for doing well is thankworthy. I believe the reason it's thankworthy is because that grace has been poured out upon us in the midst of that suffering so that in it we can return thanks. It is thankworthy. It is worthy of thanks. And notice then the last part, that last phrase in verse 20. It says that the one who suffers for doing well and takes it patiently says this is acceptable with God. Same Greek word, charis. It is grace. Do you remember when Jesus was growing, the phrase was used of him that he increased in stature and in favor with God and men? What that means is that as he was growing older and living his life, men saw him, saw his diligence, saw his work ethic, saw his honesty, saw his patience, saw how he handled being falsely accused, saw how he handled suffering, and they accepted him. They showed him favor. He received their favor. While at the same time, and this one is amazing to me when it comes to Jesus Christ, that it was not just in favor of man, but in the favor of God. That's pretty amazing that God, the God-man, could gain favor with God. Well, it's true. So we, too, find favor, acceptance with God. Now, oftentimes, when we think of grace... And rightly so, we think of it as a free gift, and it is. It is. It can't be earned. But what's being described here is is that the one who is suffering for doing well and taking it patiently is receiving the grace of God by the acceptance with God. God is pouring out His grace in the midst of it. Oh, all of this, it doesn't seem like anything I would want to endure. But yet, Peter makes it clear. This is thankworthy. This is acceptable with God. And you might be sitting back saying, wow, this is too big for me. Notice how Peter goes on. 
We're going to come back to this passage and exegete it in more detail, but just for the moment here and keeping it in context. He has introduced this section by speaking to them of their incredible privileges as a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people who have obtained mercy and are dearly beloved, though they be pilgrims and strangers. Be subject to your masters, to higher powers. This is thankworthy. This is acceptable with God. Now get how it continues, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously." who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. He's saying here that as you suffer, follow the one who has been set forth to you as an example. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see him? He's one who did not sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Remember now the context of the servant. So often when these verses are quoted, we jump right in at verse 21 and wrap up at verse 24. But it really isn't starting at verse 21 and going to 24. It begins much more before in dealing with that relationship of the servants and masters. Here it is, an example for us to follow in suffering which, by the way, is a continual theme throughout the whole book of 1 Peter. Suffering, suffering for doing what is right. We follow his steps because he suffered for doing what was right. He didn't have guile in his mouth. He didn't revile when he was reviled. He didn't threaten. But instead, what did he do? He committed himself to a faithful judge. Again, a check on masters. The master sitting in that room hearing this. You, too, will be accountable to that judge. And if you are dealing with your servants as one who is forward, one who is crooked, one who is perverse, one who is unjust, one who is cruel, you'll answer to the righteous judge. Beware. But yet the one who is suffering under one who is not a believer, or even a believer, God forbid, who is suffering in this, he too, we too, commit ourselves to him that judges righteously. We cling to the justice of God, following in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to remind you of the song that the children sang, His Way is Perfect. In so many ways, we don't understand suffering. I don't mean to say we don't suffer. There's a lot of things in this life that's just no matter where you live and how you deal with it, that's horrific and suffering. But we have so many brothers and sisters around the world throughout history and even in the present day who suffer beyond our imagination or our comprehension. When my way seems dark and dreary and the future I do not know, my heart feels so empty as the tears unending flow,
when my heart breaks with sorrow and a tempest fills my soul, can you say this one thing I know for sure? My God is in control. Can you say his way is perfect? He makes no mistake. His way is best. Throughout Scripture, we find a reference to suffering, and we find it in the context of glory. We find it in the context of, of being found worthy. Here we have this description of it being thankworthy. We find it as being acceptable with God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. But wait a minute, Jesus. No, no, no. Cursed am I when men revile me. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Here is the thankworthy. If you haven't received the thankworthiness of this, you're not going to be able to rejoice and see yourself as blessed. The opportunity, the privilege of suffering. We don't think of it that way. The privilege of suffering for righteousness' sake. This is exactly what the case was with Peter himself. Peter himself had been beaten and they departed from the presence of the consul in Acts chapter 5, rejoicing. Why? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy, worthy, special to suffer shame for his, Jesus' name. And you know what they did? Daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They kept on doing what was right. In Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote to the church of Rome saying that we glory in tribulations. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All through Scripture, when we find suffering, we find glory. We find rejoicing. It's because we have a hope. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you remember the church at Thessalonica was greatly persecuted, so much so that um, Paul and Silas had to flee that town, had to flee, flee from Thessalonica, and, there was, and they fled, leaving behind a church who was greatly persecuted. And uh, he speaks there of a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Here again, this idea of putting it in perspective that this suffering is this privilege. It's an honor. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 also deals with this idea of suffering, knowing that in Christ he has set for us an example. Philippians chapter 1. 
He says in verse 26 that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. He wants to see them, but because there's been some trouble. Only let your conversation, conversation there is your way of life, the way that you live your life, not only in speech but also in deed, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And look here, verse 28, in nothing terrified by your adversaries. You have adversaries who will make you suffer. Nothing to be terrified of. Nothing to be terrified of. Which is to them an evident token of perdition. They will be judged. You have evident token of it. But to you, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, you have an evident token of salvation and that of God. We, we are nothing terrified by our adversaries because we have an evident token of salvation, the gift of God. For he goes on to say this, for unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you see what's being described here? Is the privileges we have, the privileges we have been granted, the grace that has been given to us in the opportunity of two things. One, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In his grace, he has given us the privilege to believe on him. And this is for the sake of Christ. And we get that, and we go, oh, excited. We can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ receiving the gift of salvation. But this gift, this opportunity, is not only the privilege and opportunity, may I say the glory, of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the privilege, the opportunity to suffer for him. This has been granted to us. This has been given to us. This is thankworthy. This is acceptable with God. This is grace. This morning, do we cling to the grace of God? And as employees in relationships, do we submit in all fear as employers of a variant kind of a master? Are we good and gentle? Are we honorable and truthful? Or are we forward, crooked, perverse, and dishonest? We're free as Americans, aren't we? Let's use our freedom to serve God and thereby Honor all men, love the brotherhood, and following Jesus Christ, even if it means to suffer. Lord Jesus, we give ourselves to you this day. So much as we consider persecution, we don't see it in our lives 
to any great degree. But yet, Lord, may we not shy away from it, but recognize it as an opportunity you have given to us. And then sometimes it is expected of us to suffer. May we do so honorably in the fear of God with patience. And in cases when it involves authorities of different kinds, whether civil authorities or employees, employers and masters in other senses, may we in all things have our conscience set toward you and do what is right, that you might be glorified in and through us. We thank you for the privilege to believe on you. This privilege you have given to us, we praise you and thank you for it. As we may be faced with suffering, may we too consider it a privilege given by you. We commit ourselves now to you in this day as we praise your holy name. And I pray that if there be one here this morning who has not believed upon you, that they would take advantage of that privilege you have given, that today they might believe on you and receive the gift of salvation, that salvation that is of you, our God. Lord Jesus, dear Holy Spirit, move among us and glorify yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, let us purpose and let us commit ourselves unto a righteous, holy, loving, merciful God. And if this morning you have not experienced his salvation, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you have questions, I'll be in the back, or even as we sing, if you can't wait, I'd love to help answer your questions from the Word of God. But it is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved.